Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I am joined by our excellent Friday crew. Up in one corner, we have Natasha Moscarinas. Natasha, somehow another year has gone by us. How are you feeling? You know what? I don't want to talk about resolutions. I don't want to talk about what happened this year, but that is exactly, I guess, what we're going to be doing today. So. Yes. That's my energy. <laughs> well, speaking of resolutions, I know Marianne has volunteered to take the equity brand and do a tough mutter next year, which is a combination <laughs> distance race and obstacle course. So Marianne, thank you so much for being our avatar there. Of course. Of course. Yes. Can't wait. As she does. Marianne is a famously a hardcore distance athlete. Uh, actually, I actually have, no, have no idea. I'm just giving her a hard time. Um, Listen, though, y'all, we have a lot to get through, and this is not a regular show. We are not doing our usual Friday news dump because, in theory, news is slowing down. We'll see if that actually pans out. But we're going to be taking a look back at 2022. We have a ton of fun stuff, including your views on what the headline was for 2022. We got a lot of great submissions for that, so wait for your name. We're also going to talk about some niche topics we care a lot about, fintech, emerging fund managers, what's going on in late stage. And then we're going to wrap with some larger themes of M&A, executive turnover, and honestly, Playoffs at the end, but we're going to keep it light. We're going to have a lot of fun. And Natasha, I want you to start off our Twitter game, which was asking people what the hell happened this year in about five words. Yes, we asked you to be spicy and you all brought it. And Alex and and I didn't look at your responses, so I'm excited to be surprised. But in my mentions, I'll just run through a few. But it was going so well, went fast and broke everything. <laughs> One person just quote tweeted SBF's tweet that said what? And I kind of loved that. Ah. Um, one of my favorite founders said crypto burns just as well as paper money. Another person said not as bad as 2023. GM, we're not going to make it. <laughs> um, Singh the Sir of the Juggernaut said we came, we saw, we did not conquer. <laughs> um, and you thought having to stay home sucked. Oh. Whiplash, which, which we, we love a single word headline. And then maybe finally, uh, Phil Ivan kind of just used the open AI model and and got AI to say, I'm sorry, but I am not able to browse the internet or access current events <laughs> as I am a large language model trained by open AI. My knowledge <laughs> is limited to the text that I have been trained on. And my knowledge cutoff is September 2021. I do not have information about events that have occurred after that date. So <laughs> that was, I think, a, a run on sentence, but a headline nonetheless. Yeah, we should just put that on top of TechCrunch.com for the holidays and just leave for like <laughs> two weeks. My knowledge cutoff has actually just begun. That's crazy. Yes. <laughs> it was December 15th, 2022. I will resume my model at the start of the year. Right. <laughs> Alex, what did your people tell you? Oh, I got a lot of good ones. Danielle Stickler said the year of the lottery had more money than startups. Um, Alaskan Jackson, one of my faves, says that crying is the universal language, a good theme for 2022. Alex Conrad, our friend over at Forbes and a prior guest on the show, said 2022, the year that f***ed around and found out. That was so good. Our dear friend Ron Miller from TechCrunch.com said that 2022, the headline was, Richmond proved they didn't actually know much about investing, Ooh. which I thought was pretty funny. And uh, two more quick ones. Paul Griffiths says that the headline for the year was, Grimes' ex-boyfriend becomes the most important Republican, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> and then finally, uh, Leslie Feinzeig says, the year that men got away with literally everything. And on that note, Marianne, over to you. Wow, those are hard to beat. Okay. One of my favorites from Jody, the show that was 2022. Guarev Rakta from Pandemic to Pandemonium. Another <laughs> oh. one, No Time to Die. Another, Everything All at Once. Another, Greasing Politicians and Fawning Media Still Works in 2022. The Empire Strikes Back. 
Well, that was weird. <laughs> uh, let's see. There were there were so many that people yeah, sent in. So many good. This is one of my favorites too. Simply fuck's sake. <laughs> I love that one. Uh, 2022 build back better broke. Oh, brutal. Human bites dog. 2022 a return to the United State of what the fuck? Oh, it's I feel like it says so much on an earnest note of how people feel about thinking through what happened this year, which is a lot of fatigue and a lot of like, well, sh- and that's yeah. the tone for today's show. I feel like that's very Don. or as Mads Campbell put it. Have you seen that nice young man who stole my life savings? There's going to be a <laughs> lot of that on the show. Speaking <laughs> of money, we're going to start with a quick, very high level look at the year's venture capital. Results, if you will. We yes. talk a lot about money on the show. Natasha, venture capital is the the fuel for startups, if you will. And that's why it matters. But also, well, we find it intellectually interesting. Totally. I mean, the big statement I heard from VCs was, yes, this was a hard year, but you're only comparing it to the highest of the highs of 2021. So it's actually not that bad. But Alex, I want to hear from you. Was it actually not that bad looking back? It was indeed actually not that bad. If you rewind the clock to 2020, you recall we had that snap recession in March in the United States and uh, much of the Western world. And then after that, it was risk on. We had the SPAC boom. We had a bunch of IPOs. Crypto went nuts. Everyone had money. Marianne wrote 68 quadrillion fintech <laughs> stories because everyone and their mom is raising nine figures to make a new oh. neo bank for hamsters. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> Things were crazy, right? Uh, Then we all arrived in 2022. Actually, not much changed at the start. If you recall Q1 of this year, still pretty hot. Marianne, you were still inundated. Natasha, you were still very busy. And there was kind of a a lingering momentum from last year that persisted a bit into this. Marianne, if you had to kind of like put a finger on the month or quarter in which things really began to kind of like feel more 2022 than Q5 of 2021, when was that? Yeah, I'd say definitely the second quarter. Like we we started to see a marked slowdown and and it was... It was, I wouldn't say like it was a breaks were put on funding, but there was definitely like a screeching kind of close to a halt there for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you didn't like Q2, I think Q3 wasn't really your jam because it was slightly (laughs) quieter, less busy, lower valuations. And then we've slouched into Q4 is how it feels. Like, I feel like we're slowly like turning up the color on our jacket, going out into the rain and getting sad. That's the venture market. But if you do compare, Natasha, to your point, if you do compare even Q4 levels on an annualized basis, we are still in one of the best periods ever for startups to raise money. So it's kind of one of those like, Glass two thirds full, but I'm spoiled now. So I demand more whipped cream in my hot chocolate. I don't disagree with that metaphor. I think, you know, a lot of people, I understand why they were optimistic and maybe thinking that, okay, Q1 and Q2, it's going to be hard, but Q3 is where it's at. Or then Q4 is where it's at. Um, Because in March, 2020, we saw these two months of black swan memos and then everything, you know, as you all know, came back to more than normal and above everything. So I feel like there was that question in the air throughout this year that was kind of there, which is like, you know, activity still there and it might bounce back. I think to your point, Alex, Q4, like the vibe I'm getting from VCs and founders is like, okay, we're finally going to admit that like 2023 is going to be a very, very hard year. And, you know, we're not waiting for the snap back. It's probably going to be a lot slower of a return to normal. Not to get too prediction-y. No, no, that's that's the next, that's next Friday. 
That's spoiler yes. alert. We're doing that. We did it next Friday. Spoiler uh, alert. 2023 is going to be hard. Yeah. Ah. No, 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 well, I, oh, people are blown away by that. We're just, we're breaking <laughs> new ground. Mary, I, I feel like though, as we saw the year kind of go along, we did start to see things clarify a bit. I wrote a lot about the kind of series A and series C crunches that were seen, but yeah, I think Natasha's right. Maybe, maybe the, the biggest headline for the back half of this year is the comeback that wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I'm seeing a ton of very early stage funding rounds being pitched to me, like seed, uh, a ton of seed rounds in between like Series A, Series B, all of that. I mean, definitely not nearly as much late stage stuff. So I don't know. I feel like there's there's more very early stage funding going on right now than than anything. Well, that brings us to one of the first topics we wanted to kind of spend a minute on, which was fintech. And I just want to say fintech was the place to go to for mega rounds last year. I mean, like Hell nine yeah. figures here, nine figures there. Sometimes we even saw bigger rounds. It was it was crazy. But the latest numbers that you have show a slowdown and I think probably predicated on less late stage money. Yeah, for sure. According to CB Insights, there were only 1,900 million plus mega round deals that closed or were announced in the third quarter. That's actually the fewest since the second quarter of 2018, which is wow. really, really surprising to me because, you know, we keep saying, oh, it's not that bad when you're comparing, yeah. you know, where we've got these peaks in 2020 and 2021. But now we're talking about not hasn't we haven't seen that few mega rounds in fintech since second quarter of 2018. That's over four years ago. That's a bit sobering, I'd have to say. What's terrifying me is the fact you just said 2018 was four years ago. <laughs> four and a half. Yeah. I mean, I, I can count, but I don't I don't believe it. Yeah, that <laughs> so is so does, true. doesn't feel right. And I know, I mean, I still think about, Marianne, your interview with Henrique from Brex at Disrupt and kind of like the tone he was striking and how different it was when I first saw him on the Disrupt stage, maybe in 2018, maybe 2019, um, and they were kind of like the new buzzy company, mm -hmm. I feel like the the fact that there was no funding, okay, maybe we can put VCs aside. The companies themselves, like these companies that did reach those heights, have taken on a completely new attitude, which I don't know, it's, it's, it still feels so stark, even though, to your point, it's I guess it's been slowing down since 2018. Yeah, I mean, in general, globally, fintech funding dropped about 38% um, quarter over quarter that matched Q4 2020 level. In the US, fintech funding dropped by 43% which is also pretty low. It was like only 5 billion here in the US. And that's reaching its lowest point since first quarter of 2020. Another thing, there were only six new unicorns minted in the third quarter in FinTech. And that's also a new low since the second quarter of 2020. Okay, but, but, and splitting this around, $5 billion in one sector invested in one quarter and six new unicorns Maybe that's more like the amount of capital and value creation that fintech can support. Maybe what we saw last year was apparition. Oh, absolutely. I mean, last year was insane, not sustainable, full of like lots of and just rounds that shouldn't have happened, let's be honest. But I don't have exact numbers, but fintech, I believe, is still the most invested industry. Like it's still receiving the most venture dollars than any other industry. Last year, it was like 21%. I don't know for sure percentage-wise what it is this year. But as of the second quarter, one report I, I found did say it was still getting the most dollars compared to any other industry. Do feel like what's happening now is more down to earth. I'm actually not complaining about it. I think it's a reckoning that needed to happen. I, and, and speaking of reckonings, I know we'll talk about crypto in a little bit, but what I am hearing through the grapevine is a lot of these crypto companies that were just only focused on that sector are re-hedging, rethinking of themselves as fintech companies. And so obviously, maybe needless to say, there's no chill on the sector, even if 
investors don't have the capacity that they used to. I think in in, in some ways, maybe 2023 will have more us see more companies try and slot into the fintech bucket instead of the crypto bucket. I mean, yeah, but that's a little bit of a late switch because, you know, if you look at fintech revenue multiples from 2021 compared to this year, it is day and night. And so if you jump out of the crypto bucket into the fintech bucket in 2022 or 2023, it feels a little bit like, you know, fire and frying pan. You're still going to get sizzled. Too, too little, too late. Yes. Too little, too late. Natasha, but what about too much, too early? We're thinking about now emerging fund managers. How are they doing and how is their year? Yeah. I mean, see, like I was notoriously very excited about the rise of emerging fund managers in 2021. And Alex, I remember we had an argument about how some of these programs are not really going to help people break into VC who are coming from diverse backgrounds. It'll be more for the people that are already within the network, but want to be like super scouts. And I'll say that I think 2022 didn't really give us an answer to that debate because emerging fund managers at large to me, from what I felt were really quiet and thinking inward. So if you closed a fund recently, you took it as a time to develop your thesis more and and maybe write some checks for sure. I mean, I think people were active, but I don't think that people were trying to close their, let's say their second fund as an emerging fund manager this year. We did see some people stand out. So like Cindy Thomas left Precursor, Uh, uh, Charles Hudson's firm, which I thought was like a pretty radical decision and an interesting one. She's building a new firm right now. I'm rooting for her. We saw Megan Loist, who started Gen Z VC, leave Larere Hippo. Um, we don't know if she's starting a VC firm right now, but she is kind of staying in the venture world. And then we also saw Terry Burns, who I wouldn't really classify as an emerging fund manager. She's been at the game for so long and been really successful at it. She was GV's first black female partner and youngest partner, and she recently left as well. So I think the weird thing was like emerging fund managers were quiet this year until they kind of like a few of them left. A few of the top people, I think, have left their traditional firms and are probably just thinking about where to go next. I'm thinking reverse metamorphosis, Marianne. I feel like last year, everyone who had a following in any sector, like I have a fintech newsletter, I'm going to be a VC. I wonder if <laughs> I know what you're soon- talking about. <laughs> I, I, I don't. Maybe, maybe I do in the back of my head. I, I was not trying to point a finger. Thanks, Natasha, getting me in trouble. Uh, I wonder if instead we're going to see a lot of these first-time fund managers end up doing what Natasha said in the case of, of one person, which is maybe do something venture-ish, but not the exact same thing they were doing before. Yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, I feel like there's just a whole different mindset when it comes to investing. And and I actually applaud the, I, I call it bravery, really, for these these people to leave what are probably relatively stable positions at firms to to branch out on their own like that. So especially in an environment like this one that to be kind of cliche sounding is as challenging of an environment as we've seen in a while. So kudos to them for like branching out and taking chances. Hopefully they'll do well. In the taking chances front, like I think people should look at how Turner Novak, who started Banana Capital, I would say around 2020, 2021, he closed his second fund a few weeks ago. And the way in which he approached sharing that news was not through TechCrunch. It was through a media platform that he has built called The Split. And he was like the most transparent about markdowns, about goals and concentration of the next fund. And I, you know, while Turner doesn't, I think, resemble all how all emerging fund managers act, I do think that tells us a little bit about kind of like where the stakes are and where the transparency may need to go in order for emerging fund managers to be trusted and return to this time around. Like I kind of like if the future, you know how like there was like that VC media rise of podcasts. I think the new one is making sure you are a VC who actually has a vantage point 
and able to say something crisply, as obvious as that may sound. I feel like that's where we're heading for with emerging fund managers. Yeah, like Re- Rex Salisbury, who uh, helped lead fintech, uh, <laughs> Andreessen's fintech practice uh, a few years back, branched out on his own with a, a venture firm called was Cambrian. So he's another example of someone who's like, hey, I really want to do this and I want to do this on my own. Yeah. He, he should uh, he should start a scout program and call it Pre-Cambrian Ventures. Look, the jokes aren't going to get better just because it's the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I do think a future episode should definitely be just us suggesting product plans to CEOs and, and, and investors. Like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Free startup ideas. The answer is always, yes, we have. Because <laughs> <laughs> they get paid to think like, about this stuff all the time. They just don't, they yeah. just don't take our advice. Right. Anyways, my, my niche topic that I cared a lot about this year was the late stage market. And everyone who listens to the show knows that I love me some stocks, love to track the stock market. And, Ooh. you know, oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> the late stage market uh, kind of was bad this year, I think is maybe how I'll put it. Uh, of all the rounds that got crunched, I feel like late stage took it the worst. Marianne mentioned seed earlier. I agree. We're seeing quite a lot in the seed space that is interesting and hopeful, really, about a better future for, for uh, startups. Late stage, on the other hand, staring down the barrel of no IPOs, limited MA, valuations, compressions. I mean, I, I was actually prepping for the show today and I was trying to think of a positive thing to throw into this mix for late stage. Oh. And I didn't have anything. So I was curious if we could crowdsource <laughs> live. Does anyone have any good news for late stage startups? Hmm. I feel like, okay, well, look, hear me out. I All think right. that Instacart kind of gave us this bright spot of a company, you know, a bright spot and not a not so bright spot. On one end, I think a lot of people were hoping, I was just talking to an investor about this yesterday, where a lot of people were hoping that Instacart would set off the IPO wave this year. Like if they were to go out, everyone else would follow. They just needed one person to make that jump and Instacart was the closest to doing it. And the fact that they didn't, I think, you know, who, they probably don't care if other people, sorry, that they sold on other people, but I still think it's something that they didn't go public this year. At the same time, like they have not slowed down how much effort they're putting in and how many like executive shakeups, how many new products, reshaping the business to make more sense in this environment. To me, I think said something about how a late stage company can still be nimble at a late stage. Ooh. So that was, that was something I liked. Yeah, I would agree with that. I have another example, actually. Trip Actions. Natasha covered in October raised uh, 154 million in equity, increased their valuation from seven and a half million to 9.2 billion. And I mean, this was really a counter counter to the narrative that we've been seeing of totally. down rounds or flat rounds. They raised, and not only did they raise a nine digit round, they raised an up round. So that was definitely notable. Absolutely. And I, I think I'll throw in one more positive note about Instacart, just to Natasha's point, which is that they were the first to, I think, kind of share or leak or whatever, a, a new 409A valuation or an internal price. And we asked at the time, as Instacart changes its valuation, will that spark a trend? And yeah. little did we know how much the answer to that question was yes. So late stage, it's odd that the leader is the one who's handling the downturn the best, but hey, that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good way to put it. And not to get ahead of our predictions episode, but I don't think it's going to change much in the near okay. future. And then there was crypto, which, okay, let's be clear, probably had the worst year of any startup sector, I think. Yes, 
I think it had, sure. and it fell from huge heights too. Like, let's be clear. It only was able to have a, a bad year because so much energy was put into it. So much energy and money. I mean, Marianne, crypto is effectively a, a, a subgenre of fintech, right? Mm-hmm. Is it just kind of like fintech, like, but exaggerated, you know? Yeah. You know, I struggled with this when I first started covering fintech here for TechCrunch, you know, like trying to, to cover both fintech and crypto. They felt just traditional fintech felt so different from crypto that it was it was only logical and natural that we ended up kind of separating it out even here internally, because even though crypto is definitely fintech, there's so many differences. And definitely this year was, oh gosh, what a what a crash and burn for totally. the Totally. I mean, I feel like, you know, there was so much on the, we're, we're, we're all obviously avoiding a few acronyms currently. And mm. I love that we are. Until then, <laughs> I will say that like, I remember on, on the show, we had this moment where we were talking about like India's bank wanting to ban cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and how that could completely impact the sector. There were so many of like those moments, I feel like, where it was like, oh, like a huge shock to the ecosystem. And then I think there was like kind of this like self-proclaimed winter that, that really started around the fall, which I feel like as, as a non-crypto expert was just kind of crazy to watch happen. Yeah, it's worth also remembering where we started the year in crypto because I wrote a piece, I forget if it's January, February, whatever uh, OpenSea raised that last massive round that put them over like, oh, a, yeah. like, a, like a $13 billion valuation. Oh, yeah. And um, frankly, at the time, their numbers were pointing up and were so large that it actually kind of made sense. And then I think that was kind of the peak. I think they nailed that fundraising. And then after that, the NFT cycle has decelerated. I mean, do you, does anybody even hear about NFTs anymore? Like, I don't. Well, I still check NFT stats a couple of times a week to see if they're changing. Because, okay. you, you know, I love me a chart, but no one else maybe. Yeah, I agree that like, it's like, even at the time, its valuation didn't make sense given where NFTs were, I would say. They were doing a lot of revenue. They were. Actually, the volumes were huge. And they had this, the OpenSea business model is great. They take a two and a half percent cut. And as people trade like mad, they made hella bank. They were, they were on track to do like hundreds of millions of revenue, if I recall correctly. Like it was wow. crazy. And valuations were higher back then. So the multiples were easier to make work. It kind of made sense. But then the underlying economic pulse that they were betting on sure. s- slowed, calcified, glaciated. Right. I mean, and, and and then we saw like some of like the biggest crypto companies having just mass layoffs with OpenSea, Coinbase, Gemini. I mean, Kraken. Bankruptcies too. I mean, Celsius. BlockFi. Three Arrows Capital. Oh. Terra Luna. I mean, what guys? Like that is crazy. Voyager. I feel like. And I, I was thinking about this too, where it's like, it's kind of weird as a reporter to know that there is so much that is like underneath, but not actually on top of the surface, like dancing and wanting to be written about right now. But there's just so much that like, you, we have to look so many different directions. And I mean, I don't feel bad for us. It, it's, it's, a, it's a place to be and that's our job. But I also find it a really unique time to know where to put energy. And, you know, at the same time, like, let's talk about SBF and FTX for a second. Like, I think that a lot of people got mad that the media didn't call it out sooner. And I don't want to bring up that debate. But I just think that there's going to be a lot of big stories that come up and it's so hard to get to all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, if we're talking about looking back, I just want to point out that uh, in March at South by Southwest, I interviewed Alex Mashinsky, the founder or co-founder of Celsius CEO, and talk about bullish and celebratory and jovial was his mood. And then like months later, you know, companies bankrupt all sorts of like negative headlines. And it was like one of the most prime examples of like, 
a high in crypto to a serious low. Yeah, I just yeah. want to talk about like how much this was pervasive. Like I, I watch a lot of uh, women's soccer here in the US. And my team, the New York, New Jersey Gotham FC, sponsored by Algorand, which is a crypto company, at a lot of the NWSL stadiums, there was like the boards around the side of the field that display ads. There's those for Voyager. Like there was a ton of crypto money was everywhere. And so that it's yeah. such a downturn. Crypto.com, though, is still a sponsor of the World Cup right now, right? I'm seeing it on the on the field. Shout out to crypto.com for meeting its contractual <laughs> obligations. Let's see how many they can hold up to. Um, and, and, but this brings us to really one of the themes that we kind of been stuck on in what we're calling our downturn recap, which is just the sheer number of layoffs we've seen this year. And Natasha, I'm, I'm very curious, how did you become TechCrunch's in-house executioner? Because you've been covering <laughs> all the heads rolling all year. Oh, it's such a like moment of accountability for I think founders to even if they're not these villains that are being super mean and firing people without caring, like even if there are two sides of people who are making human decisions and had to lay people off because things change for their company overnight. I think it's so important to cover layoffs and I feel like that I say this a lot all the time, but the same way we covered your funding around the rise of your company scaling, we need to cover how that adjusts to tension. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it really to me started with like the Rassio's layoffs. Mm -hmm. That was like the first big round. And then it just kind of kept getting worse. And I think like if there was two other points that happened, it was one, when I started seeing companies do layoffs twice or three times, Hopin comes to mind, On Deck comes to mind. And I think the last and most recent trend, I guess we kind of saw finalized today is this idea that, or recently is this idea that companies were like kind of dancing around layoffs and firing people a few at a time or doing a lot of like performance improvement plans. And so I feel like we're starting to see layoffs even mature in how they are done, which Marianne, I think we think we think about better.com even is like, again, a different world. There's been so many like culture questions about how tech Mm -hmm. handled this this year. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, better.com kind of got the ball rolling last December. It was December 1st with its mass layoff of 900 people. And then it continued with multiple after that. But since then, we've seen so many layoffs in the fintech sector that you and I both have covered, right? Uh, Robinhood, Stripe, Brex, Plaid. So, you know, it's it's hitting everywhere. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is the the admission on the part of these CEOs of admitting that they overhired and they're they're like taking responsibility for it. It's like the new trend. Uh, I wish uh. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's good. And I know people are going to be like, what more do you want? You cynical media bastards. You wanted them to apologize. Now they are. Why are you mad about it? It's because now everyone's just heaping the guilt on themselves as a way to seemingly absolve the f*** up. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's so now canned. It almost feels artificial. Yeah. I, I think what's scary is like a lot of, you know, a number of people have come to me saying that they're seeing how Elon Musk handled Twitter layoffs. Maybe not the handling, but just the number of people that were laid off 50%. And like we kind of saw the layoffs this year go from like the startups to big tech and like this magic number of 20% to maybe less than around that number with the biggest, the biggest rounds maybe, or, you know, shut down altogether, separate conversation. But I think the Elon Musk strategy of really, really making such a deep cut might be mimicked more as time goes on, especially if Twitter keeps working. So maybe that's something to watch next year. But I feel like that is definitely something I'm thinking about as we think through the year is like, we saw a lot of layoffs, but what if there's like more to come and, and people, because they didn't really know what their company needs in order to run, there might be more to come. Yeah. I think another theme that really kind of like makes the, the layoff 
saga of the year make more sense to me is, is the fact that we ended up with Stripe and Plaid cutting staff at the end of the year. Because those are two fintech companies. I mean, so Mary Ann's beat, but like these were the, the companies that everyone was was kind of whispering about. When Stripe cut staff, I mean, it felt like the Titanic turning around or I, I don't know. It's some big thing. Like I, I was shocked by that. I mean, it's a $95 billion company to let's be clear. I mean, that's insane valuation. It was just very sobering, right? To be laying off. How many employees were that? About 1,100? 14% of their workforce around <laughs> 11,000. Sorry, 1,000. 11,000? Well, no. sorry, 1,120. There uh, we go. Yeah. <laughs> Still a lot, right? It's a lot. And it's, and yeah, exactly. I think it kind of sent the message like to the fintech world, like if these decacorns <laughs> like Stripe and Plaid are laying off, then you know, this this is a time to be concerned. This is a time to be like really reevaluating how you're operating. Totally. And some companies reevaluated how their executives were operating and decided that it was moving day. Sometimes people decided this for themselves. But what we have seen this year thematically as part of this shakeup has been a lot of executive turnover, not throwing stones here, just talking about stuff that happened, to be clear. Gary Tan taking over for uh, Jeff Ralston at Y Combinator. Brett Taylor stepping down from Salesforce, followed by the rest of the executive team. Uh, the CEO of Glossier stepping down. Uh, whatever the hell happened to Clearco, Pipe, we've discussed. There's been some ousters. If you think about what happened with uh, Faraday Future, there's been a couple of EV CEOs in the last few years that have gotten the boot. Speaking of boots, you wear those with your bike. And uh, Peloton CEO John Foley got two right in the backside. Oof. Jack Dorsey bounced from uh, ethics responsibility and Twitter's board. And uh, FTX naturally saw its boy king turned into a popper king, turned into a uh, pariah. So it's been a, a hard <laughs> oh, no. year for, yeah. for leaders, turns out. Which like the layoffs maybe were decided by executives. But I think to see the turnover, we cannot just say this is like, early retirements happening here. These are people who are leaving because their company was not working and they are bringing in senior leadership or in literally Pipe's case, their goal was to bring a more veteran CEO. So it's interesting to see it. I am, you know, I think about the recent Equity Wednesday with with Carla Monteroso and and, and she explained how like there should still be an idea that there needs to be conflict and, and ability to have diversity at the top. And so I worry about that with this turnover. Are they getting rid of some of that? Is that a priority for them? That's just like the one thing that's on top of my head. Mm. You know, Good questions. I think about the uh, the person they brought in to the FTX crater, the smoking ruin of that company yes. and all its subsidiaries. Uh, they brought in the whitest man ever. They do the Enron. Yeah. <laughs> uh, True. And so, you know, because things were less diverse in the past, if you are bringing in people that have the most experience, I presume that that's going to be a population set that is less diverse. So Natasha, I think you make a, a pretty fair point. And I think honestly, we could do an entire show on inequities in, in venture and startup. And frankly, maybe we should have. Things that changed yeah. and didn't change now that I'm saying it out loud. Well, fine. We'll throw it in this, this look back. Things didn't get better, right? <laughs> Sadly. Sure. I think like, you know, we're going to we're going to have a piece out on the site about startups that we said goodbye to this year, the ones that shut down. So like as far as implosions go, you will see them. I think some of the classic characters are there, which is fast, bolt, um, but there's more to come and we'll cover that all. But maybe we should end with um, M&A. And how <laughs> Did you just say there's more to come, like a teaser for more startup deaths? Like, hey, and there's more tombstones <laughs> where that came from. Buy your plot so now. True. That, was too, that was too casual. There's more reporting on that front that we are working on as we speak. Um, and, and, and that piece will be out hopefully by the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. All right. Last thing in our in our 2022 rundown, we really tried to constrain topics, themes, oh. news, notes. It was it was a kind of a battle, really. But there was enough in in certain contexts that we wanted to bring it up. Obviously, 
The biggest one was the hostile takeover slash hostile marriage of Elon Musk and Twitter. But there was also NVIDIA news, Natasha, that took us by surprise. Yeah. So NVIDIA did not acquire ARM, which I think I remember like that was one of the few things that broke out to me in my early stage world. Is world. It happened in February. And I mean, it was going to be a $40 billion deal. So to see it kind of go off the table, ARM was kind of put in this weird position where it had to explore a public offering. And I mean, to see that collapse happen so early in the year, maybe we should have known that the year was going to be a brutal one. Yeah. Also, NVIDIA stock price, you know. Woof, that's brutal. But Marianne, not everything was was doom and gloom. In fact, um, Adobe minted one of the most impressive deals we've seen in startup land ever. Yeah, I mean, it was a $20 billion deal when they decided to buy Figma, which was one of its biggest competitors. Um, I think that one was a little controversial because some people were a little offended that this startup sold out to Adobe. But I mean, you know, I think it's easy for us to say that when we're not the ones <laughs> being offered $20 billion for our company, right? I mean, for $20 billion, I'll sell TechCrunch to Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something similar, which is like, I actually, I was so surprised to see people be so upset about this exit. Yeah. Um, and I think Ron had a really good interview with Figma CEO that like is is on the mm-hmm. site. But I think that like it was definitely it was the deal of the year. Is is that fair to say? Like that was mm-hmm. the deal. That was it. Yeah. Nothing I else. Think so. Yeah. yeah. Close. If you're confused why it was controversial for amongst the Figma community that they were selling to Adobe, imagine the following the following headline: Empire buys Resistance, and Resistance leader says the next Death Star is going to be even better. That's what it sounds like to the designers out there who wanted Figma to take on and, and take down Adobe. And that was my complaint too. You know, I thought Upstars were supposed to kill the incumbents, not to be brought on with a basket full of rubies. But you know what? Frankly, $20 billion, I, man, I'm cheaper than that. So yeah, ruby, rubies sound good in this environment. Yeah. Cold, hard thing you can convert into cash. Uh, <laughs> unlike many illiquid crypto stakes, FTT. Hey. Oh. All right. So I mean, 2022, we we made it through. We did a ton of equity. We did tons of posts. We traveled. We did a live show. How are you feeling after another year of what feels like a very punishing news cycle? Marianne, how are you holding up? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm sort of sort of reeling still. I feel like it's been whiplash and, you know, just still trying to deal with that and trying to make sense of what's going on, right? There's still a lot of optimism in fintech, but there's also a lot of reality checks too. So we, we've got to balance, you know, the the good, the the bad, the wake up calls, right? As, as reporters. Yeah. Natasha, end of the year, staring on the precipice of a new one. What's your vibe? I feel like, to be brutally honest, I feel pretty lost. Like, I don't know what is best worth putting my time toward right now as like a reporter covering the most dramatic moment in venture capital and startups in a long time. And so I'm thinking a lot about like where I should put that energy and what deserves more accountability than others. Um, I did get advice from someone the other day saying, you know, when everyone zigs, you should zag. So maybe I won't think too much about FTX and Twitter and I'll be looking at your companies to everyone's listening. And that will be where we find kind of the other stories because I just think these main characters take up so much space, yeah. uh, rightfully so. But as we have the luck to work at TechCrunch, we don't need to just cover the big billionaires and millionaires. We can cover the scrappy startup founders. So yeah. hoping to find some rejuvenated energy in that. Yeah, I mean, because what we want to know is not not really what Elon's doing now, but who's the next Elon? That's what we really want to know. Yeah, so if that's you, equitypod.techcrunch.com and let us know. 
But just before we bounce, we do have some fun stuff planned for next week, including a predictions episode. We're going to flip around Ooh. and look forward instead of backwards. The three of us will be back uh, with a lot of stuff that I'm sure will be wrong by March. <laughs> um, and Natasha and I have already taken a stab at this in print. So if you need that, that'll be up on uh, TechCrunch.com. Mary and Natasha, I adore you both. I also want to give a shout out to our production team. Teresa's fantastic. We also have Maggie and Grace and Kel and uh, the whole TechCrunch podcast crew is lovely. So thanks to them. And uh, we're back soon, but 2022, we're done. Bye. See ya. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.